I have no reason to spend a long time on this because my purpose is this simple. I want you to remember four reasons why bad things happen to Christians so that when those bad things come in your life, you can quickly remember the four and understand them a little bit. That's all I have to accomplish, and that's all I want to do here in the few minutes that we're going to take on this subject. Let's turn in our Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, the philosophy book of the Bible, where Solomon by inspiration teaches us how we ought to view life. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider. God also hath set the one over against the other to the end that man should find nothing after him. Every event in your life is sent by the God of heaven. Because you are his child, he loves you. And it is sent in love no matter which of the four categories I end up in. They are all done in love. And you are to find nothing in your life but the Lord. This verse doesn't say in the day of adversity, get angry. I actually heard a counselor this in the last four days say, it's okay for you parents, speaking to my son and daughter, to be angry. Well, it's not okay to be angry because we don't get angry with the Lord at all. Everything he does is good and for wise ends and for our profit if we respond properly. Amen. It will be to our advantage and benefit. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. It doesn't take much explanation to understand that one. But in the day of adversity, consider. Think through some things that it could be. Examine yourself if need be, but don't be overly hard on yourself or you're going to end up being no better than Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, the three friends of Job who blamed him for the negative events in his life, and they were so wrong that Elihu was angry at them, and they were so wrong, God wouldn't even listen to them pray, but he said, I'll accept Job's prayer on your behalf. You don't want to start blaming yourself when something bad happens in your life. You're no better than those three friends. You have missed the boat. You've missed the Bible, because it gives us other reasons why Bad things happen. Look at Psalm 34 with me, and let's remind ourselves that the lot of the righteous in this world includes bad things. By bad things, I mean negative events. I mean those circumstances that you wouldn't have chosen that might bring some pain, some trouble, some extra financial expense, some extra worry on your part are going to happen in the lives of the saints. Psalm 34, verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. But notice that it says many are the afflictions of the righteous. It doesn't say many are the afflictions of the carnal. It says many are the afflictions of the righteous. And when we look in the Bible, we see men like Jacob as he testified at the end of his life before Pharaoh, his life had been hard and painful. But he's one of the great patriarchs in Hebrews 11, and he's in heaven. How about Joseph? How about Naomi? How about Job? Abigail? 
David, Esther, Daniel, Jesus, Paul, and the Thessalonian church, just to give you a few to think about. They were righteous, but they had afflictions in their lives, but the Lord delivered them out of them all. And you take each one of those circumstances, they were painful and troublesome, but the Lord delivered them. God's government of all events should be the foundation for our faith at all times. He's our sovereign Father in heaven and nothing happens by chance. There is no such thing as fate or coincidences or accidents. They are only and always God's providences. God has providentially governed to bring these events into our lives and that is where we leave them. As you read in Job chapter 1, the trained response should be that you can rend your clothes... Job did rent his mantle, he shaved his head, a sign of mourning, and he fell down on the ground. He was stricken with the losses that he had just incurred, but what did he do there on the ground? He worshipped. And how did he worship? It tells us, naked came I out of my mother's womb, naked shall I return thither. I didn't have anything when I entered life. I'm not going to have anything when I leave life. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not charge God foolishly like his wife did in the next chapter. But we want to respond that way every time right off the bat. This is the Lord's choice. It's not fate or an accident. And we trust him because he's our loving Heavenly Father that he's going to get glory from the event and he's going to profit our lives by the event if we respond right. Any event in your life was known to him from eternity. Right. He's sovereign, but he's also pitiful. So every difficulty that you go through in this bad event that he brings in your life, and there's going to be many of them, and they're going to get worse as time goes on and we get older, He is also pitiful so that he understands every difficult aspect of it. Every morning, when the child doesn't exactly ask for the blessing of his next blood sugar test, the Lord knows the difficulty. The Lord knows the difficulty for the child. The Lord knows the difficulty for the parents. And the Lord knows the difficulty of the grandparents thinking about the difficulty of the parents. And all the ways that it's hand, all the ways that it's felt. But the Lord knows all that and He's pitiful and of tender mercy. And He's wonderful and He's merciful and He remembers our frame and He never puts upon us more than we can handle. God made man upright. God made man very good in the Garden of Eden and gave us a perfect world and we brought every pain and trouble that you ever have in your life upon yourself. We brought it upon ourselves through Adam and through our own sins. So don't ever blame God. Blame Adam and blame yourself because he sinned once and you've sinned millions of times. His wise government is such that no one person suffers more than others. Adversity is better than prosperity. God can make you better through adversity than he can make you better through prosperity. Prosperity makes us forget God because we think we're doing so well on our own. But adversity brings us to our knees to call upon the God of heaven for his help. Adversity causes you to pray more than prosperity causes you to pray. If you haven't learned that yet, I tremble for you because he's going to show you how it works. Adversity is better. The house of mourning is better than the house of feasting. 
You learn better things there. It sobers you. Adversity draws us closer to Him in true faith, convicts us of holiness, and calls forth our utmost trust in Him. We know this, and when in our right minds, we might even ask the Lord. But I would suggest that you be very careful in asking the Lord to bring adversity into your life. If we can reduce the, the causes of negative events in our lives to a manageable number, we can prepare and respond as we should. If we faint in the day of adversity, our strength is small. The Bible tells us that. And this study is to help build it up because here's the four reasons. Bad things happen to Christians, first of all, for the greater glory of God. God can be glorified by negative events in our lives. If you'll turn to John chapter 9, I'll show you one very quickly. We don't have time to elaborate. We don't need to elaborate. We just need to remember that the first reason bad things happen to Christians is for the greater glory of God. God is going to do something through a negative event in your life to get greater glory for Himself. God can bring an evil event into your life unrelated to your obedience or your disobedience. He can just do it to magnify Himself because He's God. God is greater than man, as Job chapter 33 and verse 12 would teach us. In John chapter 9... As Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. Now that's a serious problem. Glasses don't help someone that's blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. There's a simple explanation. His parents didn't sin to cause this blindness. The boy didn't sin to cause this blindness. This was just for the glory of God. So that 30 years later, 30 years after stumbling around and crawling around blind, the Lord Jesus Christ could heal him of his blindness and have such an occasion that John chapter 9 gives us where this young man tells the Pharisees what he thinks of their religion. And if you've read John chapter 9, you know that God got a great deal of glory out of this young man. We don't even know that he was young. All we know that his parents were still living. But this whole chapter is about that man. And when you read the whole chapter, you realize God got a great deal of glory out of this man's blindness. You say, well, it doesn't seem fair to me. It's better than fair. The man should have been in hell. Who cares if he was blind? The Lord gave him his sight. If you'd have asked that man at the end of John chapter 9, was it worth having 30 years of blindness to have Jesus Christ say the things to you that he just said? The man would have said, Amen, give me 30 more. Jesus said to him in John chapter 9 and verse 35, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Amen. Uh, let me ask you, would you give 30 years to have that personal exchange with the Lord Jesus Christ? Give me my seeing-eyed dog and cane right now. Amen. To have that. It reminds me of a song that we have played in this church in some of our homes. Too small a price to die on the cross be beside the Lord Jesus Christ and hear his words. Today, 
thou shalt be with me in paradise. Would it be worth to go through a crucifixion death to have Jesus say that to you personally? Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. See, this is an event that took place for the glory of God. If we were to go two chapters over, it's Lazarus getting sick and dying. When Lazarus got sick, his sisters, whom Jesus loved, all three of them, Lazarus and Martha and Mary, they sent to Jesus to come and heal their brother. Jesus stayed right where he was for a couple of days, knowing what was going to happen. Lazarus was going to die. That sounds terrible. How inconsiderate of Jesus not to rush right over there and heal Lazarus. What was the purpose? Well, it tells us in John chapter 11. If you look there, verse 4, when Jesus heard that, the sisters had sent, in verse 3 it says, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now you might say to me, it was to death, so what does the Bible say it wasn't to death? Because being dead three days isn't dying. That's coming back to life. It wasn't real death. Real death is, you're there for a long time. Lazarus is only there for a few days, but it was for the glory of God. And what would Lazarus, what an event that was. Lazarus, come forth. It couldn't have happened without the negative event of the sickness and then the death taking place first. So the Bible tells us about these kind of events. The Apostle Paul had a thorn in his flesh, and the Bible does not tell us what it was, but 2 Corinthians chapter 12 tells us about it, in that it buffeted him. It was something he did not like. It troubled him and bothered him, and he prayed three times that God would take it away from him, but God said, no, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. If I leave this thing with you, which makes you weak, Because it's the power of the devil that I've allowed into your life in this one matter to buffet you in the flesh. I get greater glory because you continuing on as an apostle, sustained by my strength, you glorify God better because of this negative event in your life. How should we respond when we hear about God may have done this for his own glory? How should we respond? I'll show you. You might want to memorize this verse. It's 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9 is where the Lord told him, Paul, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient for thee. I'll get you through this. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Unless I make you weak through this messenger of Satan that buffets you, I can't magnify my strength through you. So what's the response? In the middle of verse 9, Paul said, Most gladly, most gladly, therefore will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, that's the second therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then am I strong. We've got to have events in our lives that are negative and bad that make us weak for the strength of Christ to shine through us because He upholds us, cheers us, guides us, blesses us, empowers us, fills us with joy when the rest of the world would say they ought to be angry, they ought to be discouraged, they ought to be depressed. I wouldn't blame them if they committed suicide. Paul had enough. Read his life. the greater glory of God. 
Wonderful. So that's one of them. God may have brought some event into your life for His glory. How cheerful can we be in the face of our adversities? Right. God gets greater glory. We couldn't give Him that glory, being cheerful in the face of prosperities. Does that sound like that's giving God glory? If we're just being buried with prosperity and we give God glory and we praise Him and thank Him? The Lord knows every single one of you that put up with adversities and you do it cheerfully and you bear them by His strength and you cast your burdens upon the Lord. He gets glory out of that. I want you to know that our God is smart enough that He can bring an event into your life to accomplish all four of these categories. So there's no way that I can limit the Lord and put Him in a box that's only got four sides or a square with four sides because God's able to work all four at the same time. The second one is He does it for the trial of your faith. He wants to test your faith, develop your faith, and build your faith through these adversities. God had bragged of Job's uprightness. Satan questioned Job's uprightness and said, the only reason that Job worships you is because you've put a hedge about him and you bless everything that he touches. God said, well, then go ahead and take away what he's got and let's see what happens. And see, the Lord gave him a trial of his faith and Job passed it. Look at James chapter 1 as one of the places in the Bible where we are taught this one. James chapter 1. Our faith... What is faith? It is believing that God is and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. That faith is not strengthened as much by prosperity and blessings and rewards as much as it is by adversities, afflictions, and trouble. Then we call upon the Lord and we beg Him to reward us for diligently seeking Him. When we're being blessed with prosperity, we just automatically assume, I must be seeking Him. And we shouldn't do that. We should rejoice in the day of prosperity, but we should consider. Look at James 1, verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith is for the glory of God. No, that would be reason number one. And we're not at reason number one. We're at reason number two, which is the trial of your faith. Knowing this, James 1, 3, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. What is patience in the Bible? It's not waiting for a long time. Patience in the Bible is cheerfully enduring negative events. Right. That's why it says divers temptations, difficulties and troubles in your life. Verse 4, but let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. For you to be perfect as a Christian, the most important thing for you to learn is patience. And patience is cheerfully enduring negative events. So, we can't become perfect without negative events. God can't perfect us with prosperity, but He can perfect us with adversity. So when the adversity comes, we should rejoice. Count it all joy. How much joy? This isn't my Bible. This is the Bible of the God of heaven. My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall. I don't like to fall in any respect. But count it all joy when ye fall into divers, different kinds of temptations. Why? Because it's to make you perfect. 
because without that negative event that you're learning to handle cheerfully by trusting God, you can't let patience have a perfect work and become perfect. The same thing is taught in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, but we're not going to turn there. The same thing is taught in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. We know we walk closer to the Lord and more consistently when we're in trouble with adversity. Prosperity does not help us nearly as much. We know when we're delivered from painful adversity, we believe and trust Him more than ever before. And we should consider this aspect of man's nature. When you read the book of Judges, and the Israelites turned to idolatry, and the Lord judged them, what did they do when He judged them? They cried unto the Lord. When He blessed them with prosperity, did they cry unto the Lord? No. Jeshurun waxed fat and kicked rebellion against God because they were prospering so much. And you just read about it over and over and over and over again because it happened that many times in the book of Judges. But it's adversity that brought them back to the Lord. And that's the way Solomon prayed in 1 Kings chapter 8 that when this temple is finished, O Lord... And if we're taken captive in a foreign nation far from here, but if we pray toward this place, because Solomon knew, because the Lord had taught throughout the pages of Scripture, that he would bring about captivity in order to cause those people to think upon him again and to call upon him. So it is a trial of your faith to make your faith stronger and better. I want to remind you that the Lord Jesus Christ, as soon as he was baptized, which was an act of obedience to God, he told his cousin, John the Baptist, let us do this thing, you baptizing me, even though it should be the other way around, to fulfill all righteousness. As soon as he did that, he was led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness to be tempted 40 days and 40 nights by the devil personally. And he was very hungry. And he was tried three different times, but he passed it so gloriously by saying each time, it is written. It is written. It is written, get thee behind me, Satan. Then what did he do? Now he was ready to go into his ministry. And he was ready. Because he had passed the test, his faith was strong. When he was very weak, he still trusted in the word of God. And he didn't care that the devil was saying, you know how hungry you are. Turn those stones into bread. When God had told him to fast for 40 days and 40 nights. And the rest of that event that we don't have time to elaborate on. But you can remember it well. Abraham got a son in his old age named Isaac. When Isaac was somewhere around 16 years of age. God told Abraham, I want you to take Isaac and take him up on Mount Moriah and offer him as a burnt sacrifice to me. That's a trial of your faith. That's a real trial. Offer him as a burnt sacrifice. Just burn him up to me. Show me how much you love me. Abraham took him right up there, tied him down on that altar and raised the knife to slay him, believing that God could raise him from the dead. And the Lord stopped the whole thing, provided a lamb for him, but the whole event took place for what reason? Now I know that you fear me. Are those words worth hearing? How can God know that we fear him by burying us in prosperity? He needs to try us. And then he'll see if we still trust him. And so he does from time to time. If you question or resent a trial that God sends you, you beg God to lengthen it or toughen it. Do you know that Job could have gotten rid of his trial a lot sooner than he did? 
but he wanted to fuss about it and complain and whine. Elihu told him, the way that you're headed right now, you are talking like a wicked man and God's going to cut you off. Now he's taken away all your stuff and he's taken away your health, but the way you're headed, he's about to kill you. Because you're talking just like wicked men. If you had shut up and taken your place and admitted that God was greater than man and kept up your spirit from Job 1 all the way through, it had been gone. That is all found in Job chapter 36, verses 15 through 23. So we have two reasons why bad things happen to Christians. For the glory of God, for the improvement of your faith, for the building of your faith. The third one is for the chastening of your sins. God chastens us for our sins. You're at James. Turn back a few pages to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 5, ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. Isn't that wonderful? There is an exhortation in the Bible that God gave us as His children. Not as His enemies, not as neutral persons, but as His children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of Him. For whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom He receiveth. If ye endure chastening... God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, every son gets chastised, then are ye bastards and not sons. And it goes on to further explain God's chastening. Chastening is God's punishment for our sins. And rightfully so. When we sin against him, thanks be to God that he doesn't just let us go. Because if you sin once, then you'll sin twice, then thrice. And pretty soon it's a lifelong life wasted in sin. But the Lord brings affliction into our lives to chasten us for our sins and stop us. Just like we try to stop our children. We try to stop our children from touching hot objects in our home where they could be burned. We try to teach our children not to stick their two licked fingers into wall sockets because they could be electrocuted. We teach them about the road and where they should ride their bike and where they can play with their BB guns. And we go on and on with all these rules because, and then when they break the rules, we punish them in order to reinforce the rule for whose profit? Their profit. When God chastens us because we've sinned, whose profit is it for? Ours. And it tells us so. If we just go ahead and read, He does it for our profit in the second half of verse 10, that we might be partakers of His holiness. Thanks be to God that He afflicts us. In faithfulness He afflicts us. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But God brings us back by affliction. So the third category is the chastening of our sins by God punishing us for them. And that is a thing of love. That is a helpful thing. That brings profit into our lives. That makes us better. There's a silver lining in that cloud. Be thankful God's chastened you when, you're, when you've sinned. And He'll make the connection for you. Just like a father should not discipline a child that does not know why he's being disciplined, and therefore you need to explain it carefully to them, God is never going to chasten you without explaining it to you. It's a wonderful thing. It proves His love. And listen, God's chastening can come in any part of your life. So don't do simple math. If you like 2 plus 2 equals 4, God can chasten you in one area of your life, though you're being obedient in that particular area, but you're being disobedient over here. I give you the example from the book of Haggai. They were diligent in laboring. 
They were out planting their fields, Haggai chapter 1. And you can read it there. I don't have the time to take you there and read it. I love Haggai, and you know that. But that first chapter, God said, Consider your ways. You're planting, you're sowing, you're working, and you're earning wages, but you're putting it into a bag with holes in it because I'm blowing against you. God was blowing against them financially, though where was their sin? Their sin was in the worship of God. They were not building His temple like they should have, which is why Cyrus had sent them back to Jerusalem. You have built your houses, and they're all finished. But you haven't finished the house of the Lord. And so though it was in their worship where they were cheating God, it was in their finances where God was chastening them. The Corinthians abused the Lord's Supper, but it was physical health that was bad. It wasn't that they didn't get anything out of the Lord's Supper. They weren't anyway. But the Lord was chasing chastening them in a different part of your life. And so the most important lesson on this point is right here. Obedience in another part of your life doesn't cover for disobedience in another part of that life. And that's in Haggai chapter 2. Because you're obeying by being diligent in your professional pursuits is not going to cover you in ignoring the worship of God. And that's taught in the second chapter. It's a wonderful little book. Obedience in one area does not sanctify disobedience in another. But disobedience in one area can ruin your obedience in another. That is the lesson of the second chapter of Haggai. When faced with adversity, we should ask God to show us our sins. Look at Job chapter 34. That's part of considering. But don't you just jump to the conclusion that there is some sin. When a child gets sick, the parents want to immediately conclude God's judging us for something. And oh, we're very good at it. We can think back and pull up all kinds of things. And I've heard it from many of you, and I want to comfort you. I'm not upset with you. I'm upset at me for not being able to comfort you more. God's going to make it plain to you. That's why He, the Lord's not going to do anything, but He tells His prophets. Did you get anything out of Amos chapter 3 this morning, or do you think they were just sound bites from me? He is not going to bring evil into a city and trouble someone without the prophets explaining what it was for. And telling that it's coming. The Lord's going to let you know. Whenever you do that, whenever you say, I'm pretty good at connecting dots. In fact, I won a contest in the third grade doing it. And so you like to connect dots. I've got something bad in my life. Well, I think it's when I drove through that red light 13 years ago. I'm just sure that that's it. Where did you get that from? You think the Lord's so slow that He's going to sit around and let you sin heinously against Him by driving through a red light and not telling you about it for 13 years? Do you think He's not going to make a connection with some sermon or passage of Scripture? That's not taught in the Bible. It's going to be obvious. And so sometimes negative events in your life are God's chastening for sin, but you want to be careful. Here's what you want to do. Job chapter 34 is, is Elihu explaining it? Verse 31. Surely it is meet. Job 34, 31. Surely it is meet to be said unto God, I have borne chastisement. 
I will not offend any more. That which I see not, teach thou me. If I have done iniquity, I will do no more. Just tell the Lord, Lord, if there's, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Examine yourself by the word of God. Ask the Lord to show you what you do not see. And then look to the other explanations as to why a bad events happen in your life. If you continue down the course of, I think I'm good at connecting dots. You are like Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. For the second time, I'll explain that those names are the names of the three friends of Job that God rejected. And that Elihu was angry at because they did not pursue the matter correctly. They accused Job of having a secret sin. The Lord's going to convict you of your sins and you won't have to guess about it. You'll know, I have been negligent in this area. Lord, I repent. Have mercy upon me. And if there's something else, show me. Lord, get greater glory out of this. Lord, build my faith through this event. But don't just hammer yourself and pound yourself because you're not wise in the matter. Wise saints will ask God to keep them from dominating presumptuous sins. And the Lord will show them. You know, God may grant you forgiveness for a sin and still punish you with some consequences of it like David. The Lord told David, thy sin, I, thy sin hath been forgiven thee. And yet there were consequences in his life because of it. I need to move on to the fourth category. The first category is the glory of God. The second category is the building of your faith. The third category is chastening for your sins. The fourth category is simply the consequences of your foolishness. It is natural. It's consequences to foolishness. There are so many choices that we make in life, and if you make foolish choices, God is going to let them, unless He intervenes to defend you from yourself, to have negative consequences in your life. And that's a good thing, because that rewards and punishes us according to the degree that we follow the wisdom of God's Word. And so it's a good thing. We want rewards and punishments, so when we do what is right, there's a reward. Yea, verily, there is a God in heaven that rewards the righteous and the wicked. Look at Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 27. Proverbs 14, 27. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. That is one verse of dozens in the book of Proverbs that tell us that if you fear the Lord and obey Him and follow Him, it's a fountain of life to you. And it helps you get away from the snares of death. Because there are so many problems in life. And if you do certain things, you're going to pay for them. If you marry an odious woman, you are going to spend your life unhappy. And so parents ought to be very much involved in helping their children marry a virtuous woman and a virtuous man, a gracious woman and a gracious man. The consequences of the marriage decision are enormous. They last 50 or 60 years. They're daily. They're intimate. They're personal. They're painful. They're public. They're horrible. But see, that's the natural consequences of foolishness. The Bible says, Favor is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. And so some young man sees a beautiful woman who does nice things for him and says, That's the woman I want to marry. That's the woman I want to marry. Dad, get her for me. That's what Philistine whores did for Samson. And so he goes and makes a choice based on beauty and based on favor, and he ends up in marital hell for 50 years because he didn't put the fear of the Lord first. An independent, 
fear of the Lord. Independent means it doesn't matter whether you're in her life or not. It doesn't matter whether her parents fear the Lord or not. She has an independent, God-created, Holy Spirit-produced fear of God. That woman is the one you should marry. And if you don't, you're going to pay for it. Proverbs chapter 6 says, verse 1, My son, if thou be surety for thy friend, if thou hast stricken thy hand with a stranger... Verse 2, thou art snared with the words of thy mouth, thou art taken with the words of thy mouth. Those two verses and the next three that follow are describing co-signing loans for somebody. And the Bible warns against doing it because it's going to get you into trouble. Well now, if you want to go around thinking you're a big sneeze by co-signing loans for everyone, it's going to come back to bite you. And when it comes back to bite you, don't blame God for His glory. Don't blame God for chastening you for your sins. Next, all this, this would be a sin too. Don't blame God for trying to build your faith. You've been a fool. If you don't get a transferable skill, don't try to tell us that God's chastening you in your life or that God is doing something for His glory by your financial difficulties. Your financial difficulties are because you were too lazy in school and you like playing basketball and video games instead of getting a transferable skill. These are the consequences to foolishness and the Bible is filled with them. Poor child training might bring God's judgment because it's breaking God's Word, but it's also going to bring family heartache by unruly children. Poor preparation for worship, God may judge, like He did the Corinthians, but it's also going to cause our assemblies to be boring to you. Well, they're only boring because you haven't prepared. There are consequences to foolishness, and they happen all the time. If you marry a hypochondriac man from a hypochondriac family, you're always going to be a nurse. Is that difficult to figure out? You say, I can't believe all the bad things that happen in our family. My husband has always got something that's hurting him. Well, you married a hypochondriac. It's your fault. Don't blame God for getting glory, chastening sin, or building your faith. You married the wrong man. And it works the other way just as fast. Folly by those in authority over you. You know, a government can bring folly upon us. Our parents can bring folly upon us. A father can make horrible investment decisions and affect the rest of the family. But we don't blame that on God. We don't say, well, God's getting glory out of this. He will get glory out of everything. But it's really because someone in authority over you made a bad choice. Kings make bad choices and it costs the whole nation. A foolish, lazy, or selfish parent costs his children. A woman married to a fool, either her father's decision or her decision or both, are going to cost her dearly through life. A carnal or a slothful pastor is going to cost his congregation because 1 Timothy 4.16 tells ministers that if they don't take heed to themselves and to the doctrine, they can cost the salvation of themselves and their hearers. Now that's not their names in the book of life. That just means their gospel salvation and the pleasure and joy that they can have walking with Christ will be lost because a minister did not take care of himself personally or doctrinally. Some sins have long-term consequences unless God intervenes. If you cheat on education, you're not going to make it professionally. If you cheat on marriage, you're going to live a miserable life. 
If you cheat on child training and don't do it God's way, you're going to suffer for it. And I'm not speaking about God directly chastening you for it. I'm talking about the natural consequences of having a child that's always got his way that you didn't discipline. That child is going to eat you alive in the future without a miracle of grace. Sexually transmitted diseases, saving. You don't want to save? Well, it's going to come back to bite you. You like debt? It's going to come back to bite you. You do something foolishly in the legal sense of the word and you get a criminal record? It's going to affect you. You drive recklessly? It's going to affect you. And so let's not blame God for those things. Let's just realize, boy, we have choices to make every day and they can have consequences. So let's not blame God. Let's blame ourselves where the blame ought to be. There's so much of that in the book of Proverbs. Responding to bad things in our lives is the most important thing we can learn right now. Remember, God is plenty wise enough to combine one or all of these reasons together. Praise His holy name. Never question or charge God foolishly. Don't you ever get angry at God or blame Him. He's doing something for His glory. Your prophet, if you respond properly, the, correct, the, the correction of your life and directing you into holiness, love Him for it. And just face it and ask the Lord for strength and to go and go do it. Poor Paul had that messenger of Satan to buffet him. And if Paul was praying for Paul had a, a high pain threshold. I hope you know that from chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians. He had a very high pain threshold. So when Paul's praying for the Lord to take something away, it's serious business. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities. And that's the, that's the response we ought to have. Even when bad things are happening to you, don't the good things still outnumber it 10 to 1? No. 100 to 1? No. It's still better than that. Count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord hath done. But do you know how wicked your heart is? One bad event can come to you in a day, and that one bad event can bring storm clouds and ruin everything. I hate this house. I'm not happy in my marriage. I hate my health. I hate this meal. I'm sick of this. From one little event? Where does that come from? Something that's black right in here. Instead, we should be looking at all the good things, and we can at any time. Is God fair? He's better than fair. He's gracious and merciful because we deserve hell. We should laugh at our light troubles. There's silver lining in every cloud if we'll look at these four reasons for them. For God's glory, we should give Him the glory joyfully at all times, acknowledge His right to our lives, and use all reasonable means in prayer to remove the adversity. But we'll trust Him to take it away when it's best. For trials of faith, we should understand their value, rejoice in their purpose, like the Bible told us, be thankful for their product, that's our improvement, learn the lesson quickly, and cheerfully endure the pain. Learn it quickly. Job could have had that burden lifted much sooner. For chastening of sins, we should pray for God to reveal our faults, examine ourselves carefully, confess as soon as we have any conviction, submit to reproof from others, and tell God we have learned the lesson as quickly as possible. I have sinned and corrupted, perverted that which was right, and it profited me not. My favorite confession prayer is in Job chapter 33. If you want to see Job, Elihu explaining to Job, Job, this is how you say it. I have sinned, I have perverted that which was right, and it profited me not. God, you are right and I am wrong. 
your law was right and better for me, and I perverted it, and it did not profit me like my deceitful heart said that it would. That's coming clean with the Lord and mean those things, and the Lord said He'll restore your life to you. For the consequences of folly, we should obey God's word as early and fully as possible, be prudent in all our decisions, beg God for mercy in our failures, and use all means God has taught for our recovery, and then beg Him to restore the lost years of the canker worm. He is able to do those things. There's four reasons why bad things happen to Christians. You can remember them. You can be prepared so that you stand like Job and you worship. Or you fall down and you may, be, you may rend your mantle. But when you rend your mantle, make sure that you're still worshiping and make sure that your worship lines up with Job's. Never fret against the Lord. What songs should you encourage yourself with? We just sang one. God will take care of you. We just sang another. It is well with my soul. Written by a man that lost his three daughters at sea. These are things that you ought to remember. You don't wait until adversity strikes in order for you to build your faith. You build your faith now. Then when adversity strikes, you are ready to face it like Job faced it. What an example we have. You read it last evening. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.